you guys um, can say definitively that you've actually heard a word from God, you knew that it was God. No questions asked. I did. When I was asking him about this sermon, I said, Father, what do you want me, who, which character in the Bible do you want me to preach about? And the Lord very clearly said to me, Phineas. And I went, are you kidding? No, I must have heard wrong. God, who do you really want me to pray, preach about? Phineas. No, 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 no. I'm hearing wrong. God, there must be, I, what, really? Phineas? Uh, not good. Not good. Okay, I'll preach it. Um, how many of you know who Phineas is? You don't have to say, but how many do you know? If I, if I asked you, you could tell me where he's found in the Bible, what his father's name was, what his grandfather's name was. Not a single person. Well, good, you're going to learn something this morning. <laughs> Phineas was the grandson of the high priest Aaron. Phineas is famous for one thing. He killed people. The nation of Israel was still going through the exodus. Moses was still alive. There was a major horror happening to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel... According to the words of the Bible, forgive me if there's younger ears in here, but this is actually the words in the Bible. The nation of Israel was whoring with the Moabite nation. Okay? And so, not only were they having physical intimacy with the Moabite women, which was against the law, they were also engaged in worship of the Moabite gods which was very much against the law. And God visited the nation of Israel with a plague. And, the, the, and Moses had gathered the leaders of Israel, including the priests, for a meeting. And they're standing outside discussing what are they going to do. And Moses literally said, maybe we need to get the leaders of each tribe who are allowing this to happen and hang them. That's literally what was said. And you know what happened while this outdoor conversation was going on? A young man came through the camp in front of all of these leaders, holding on to the hand of a Moabite woman and brought her into his tent. And Phineas went, enough! And he went running and he grabbed a spear and he went into that tent and the Bible says he caught that couple in the very act and plunged the spear through both of them, killing them instantly, and the plague stopped. And Phineas was declared righteous, and he has been held up throughout all of ancient Israel's teachings, even to this day. If you look in Psalm, I don't remember which one it is now, but one of the Psalms, I think it's 106, it literally says, and there was a plague going, and Phineas intervened. And if you look in Bibles that have the, uh, the, 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 per the pericopes have headings, 
These aren't the actual words that were written in the Bible, but this is what editors have done. And they've said, well, this section talks about blah, blah, blah. This section talks about blah, blah, blah. Well, if you go to the book of Numbers and look at the story of what I just described, Phineas, the, the, the heading usually says, the zeal of Phineas. Now, zeal is a good thing, yeah? Or is it a bad thing? Good or bad? Huh? Good. Good? Being excited and motivated about something. Being on fire for something. Motivated to the point of taking action. And I was like, God, I, I don't like this idea that somebody murdering somebody is called righteous. But this is what you asked me to preach about. So then I started looking up other people who were described as being zealous for God. You know another one that came up? Oh, and I do have to give credit where credit is due. Um, part of this sermon comes from John Wesley, and part of this sermon comes from N.T. Wright. Um, I'm reading a, a, a biography of Paul, the Apostle Paul, and uh, N.T. Wright discusses some of this stuff. So I've, these aren't original ideas with me. Some of them are, but not all of them. Um, after Phineas, the next one that is highlighted is a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet. And guess what was going on in his time? The nation of Israel was aligning themselves. Let's use that word because that's a lot more genteel. Was aligning themselves with the god Molech and the Ashtoreth and Baal. And you know what Molech's demand was? Throw your infants into the flames as a sacrifice to me. And so the nation of Israel under King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were doing that very thing. And Elijah, we are, it is recorded, in his zeal for God puts out a challenge to the priests and prophets of Baal and says, join me on this mountain and let's see which God is the true God. And so there is a, a fight to the death, if you will, between the two gods. And the Moabite, I mean, the, the Baal priests set up their, um, um, their offering and they cry out almost 12 hours or so. Nothing happens because the whole challenge was you set up the, the offering, but you do not put flame to it. You let the God that's really God send the flame. And so the story goes that they cried out all day. At one point, Elijah goes, well, maybe he's uh, busy. And that word busy literally means maybe he's on the toilet. He's mocking their God. Then finally, he says, okay, enough, enough. And so he then, with some help, rebuilds the altar to God, and he sets the wood on the on the on the, the altar, and then he sets the altar the, the sacrifice on the altar, and then he has them do something really crazy. He has them get water. Now there's a drought going on, so this is a significant thing. He has them get barrels filled with water and dump onto this offering three separate times, soaking it. There's a trough that's built around the altar, and it fills that trough with water, and then he he just simply says, God. Show these people who you are. 
fire from heaven, comes down and takes out the offering. And then this great, enormous, horrible slaughter of 450 Baal prophets and priests happens. And Elijah is held up as righteous because of his zeal, which destroyed the enemies. Okay, that's two zealots that are in the Bible that are violent and murderous. Not murderous necessarily, but using anger and violence to honor God. Hmm. There's not a lot of people that are considered zealous in the Bible. One of the apostles was, his name was Simon. Simon the Zealot. There was Simon who was known as Peter. Simon the Zealot. And in that time, in Jesus' time, do you know what a zealot was? Do you remember? There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Zealots were the ones who were so sick and tired of their nation being overrun by the Romans that they were doing absolutely everything that they could to push off this oppression. I mean, if you want to liken it to something modern, you could liken it to the underground in France during World War II, where they were trying to cause insurrection to destabilize the government so that their nation could rise back up. There's also in Israel's history, it's not in the Bible, but there's in Israel's history, there is in, in the book of Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha, there's the story of how the Maccabeans really, literally overthrew the oppressors and set up an independent state of Israel with its own government for 125 years. This happened between the book of Malachi, the time of the book of Malachi, and the time of the writing of the New Testament. So in that 400-year period of, of silence, biblically, 125 of those years was handled by, um, was, was, was set up as a, an actual independent state of, it, of Israel under the Maccabean dynasty. So they were also known as zealots. But again, they had to fight and kill. Simon the Zealot, one of the apostles, had to, was known as a fighter, someone who was an insurrectionist. But then he followed, became a follower of Jesus, but he was still known as the Zealot because he, he was that passionate about the nation of Israel. And I looked, and do you know that there's actually a story about Jesus where the word zeal is used? Turn to John chapter 2. It's the confusing thing that happens in the Gospel of John. Because this story is told in all four Gospels, but in the other three Gospels, it's told during the, the Passion Week of Christ. This is told at the beginning of Jesus' um, time on the earth and his time of ministry. John chapter 2. It's the time where Jesus clears the temple. It's the time where Jesus acts violently. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their their tables. Those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that your authority do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he goes on. And that zeal for your house will consume me is actually a quote out of Psalm 69. Jesus himself is described as being zealous for God and acting violently. And I was like, I don't like these words. But I want to talk a little bit about this idea of zealousness and violence and how I come to conclusion that works for me. And I, I wish, I truly wish that I could go to the end right now because it's so cool, but I have to take you on this path with me. Many, many, many years ago in 1987, my wife and I moved from the Philippines to Mississippi to be stationed at Biloxi, a Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And after about six months or so of being there, maybe seven months, we moved into base housing. And we had just, I mean, we, it, was a, it was a day move because we were already living in the Biloxi area, had been living in a house downtown that we were renting. And then finally we moved into base housing. So the, the, the movers came, packed us up, brought our stuff to the new house, dropped it off, and we're good. So we're slowly getting ourselves moved in. And the way our house was set up, you would walk in the front door of the house and immediately to the right was a dining room. I mean, excuse me, was a, a laundry room. Then there was a, a long hallway that went by a walk-in closet, a bathroom, stairs going upstairs. Then in the back of the house, there was a living room, dining room. Then coming back towards the front of the house, there's a galley kitchen. And now right here by the front door, there was a breakfast area. It was a dining room, but it wasn't a formal dining room because it was part of the kitchen area. Okay, so coming in the front door, you could either go straight down the hallway towards the back living room, or you could turn right to go to the laundry room, or you could turn left to go into that uh, that dining area, that breakfast nook thingy. And I was standing in that breakfast nook thingy. And we had curtains already hung. They were just kind of cafe-style curtains. So I could see out, but people who were outside couldn't see me. Just beyond our window, there were some hedges. And the hedges came up to about the bottom of the window. So again, there was a, a, a bit of distance between me standing inside the house and the front yard where these hedges were. And at the time, we had two daughters. Our daughter, Robin, who was age almost five. Actually, by that time, she was five, five and a half. And our daughter, Amanda, who was almost two. And Robin said, Daddy, can I go outside and play? Yes, you can go outside and play. Just stay in the area. We lived on a cul-de-sac. So as long as we could see her in the center of the thing, it was okay. Brand new to the neighborhood. Little five-year-old girl. Doesn't know a stranger. She walks up to a group of girls who were playing on our front area. 
And those girls were mean, spirited, vicious, ugly, shredded my daughter in the first moments of her being out there. And Papa Bear came out. And I wanted to destroy these four-year-old and five-year-old girls that were harming my child. And I don't remember if my wife was present or not, or if it was simply God, one of the two, but both were powerful in my life. Holding me back and saying, let them fight it out. They have to go through this process. It's okay. Everything in me wants to go and make right what is wrong. And for me, that's what I understand as zeal. An intense, motivating, powerful feeling over something that I know isn't right that needs to be made right. So using that as an understanding of zeal, I can see where Phineas could be declared righteous. I could see where Elijah's actions could be declared righteous. I can definitely see Jesus' actions being declared righteous. But there's another guy who's declared and understood as being zealous. He himself describes himself as being a zealot. His name is Paul, also known as Saul. If you read in his letters, I don't remember which one now, I didn't write it down. He literally says, I think it was Philippians chapter 3, that's what it was, Philippians chapter 3. He says, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. When he was describing who he was. What does persecuting the church mean in this zeal thing? What was he doing? If you go back and look in the book of Acts... This zealot, this man who was a Pharisee among Pharisees, who knew the, the law of God, who was honoring God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loved God with all of his heart, who wanted to do right by God, saw these people bastardizing the truth, declaring this crucified man as the Messiah? What are you kidding me? You're just, you're defiling everything that we know to be true. Because the Pharisees, if you don't know this, the Pharisees truly believed that the Messiah would be coming very soon. And what their job was, was to continue to call the nation of Israel to live the Mosaic law. They knew the Torah backwards, forwards, inside and out. And every time they saw someone not doing what was right, they called them on it. There was also the oral traditions, which later became known as the Mishnah. It was never written down, but it was just this oral teaching of this is how we should live as, as people of God. And so this man who was on fire for God, who was taught among the best teachers in the nation of Israel, who was a man among men, who was a, a Pharisee among Pharisees, who was a zealot among zealots when it came to honoring God with all that he had and wanting the rest of his nation to do that, he saw these Jews turning away from the truth and going after this false way and he was going to do everything he could to stamp it out. He was a zealot for God. He was going to honor God with all that he had. Was it righteous? It was. Was he wrong? Of course. Did he change? 
definitely. When? When he finally came to understand who Jesus was. He came face to face with the truth on the road to Damascus. And then he spent three days in utter darkness, just praying. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. I don't want any food, leave me alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. And at some point, the Holy Spirit of God whispered to him the truth. That what he had seen and experienced on the road to Damascus was real. And then it was confirmed because a follower of Jesus, who was scared to death, came and obeyed out of obedience and said, Brother Saul... My name is Ananias. I'm one of the ones who live in Damascus that you had a letter from the high priest that said you had the right to come and arrest me and take me and put me in prison. But God, the Holy Spirit, has convinced me that I have, it. I have to come out of obedience to speak to you, to pray with you, to bring healing to your eyes, and to convince you of the truth. And so Ananias prays for Paul. The word says that something that looked like scales fell off of his eyes and he could see. But if you go into Paul's writings, you will see that he then went three years into the wilderness, into Arabia, and just chewed on everything. Meditating, mulling it over, thinking through. He knew the Bible, backwards, forwards, inside and out. But he has this new revelation about Jesus, the true Messiah. And he needs to incorporate all of that into what he knows. And finally, finally, he is ready. And then God sets him out on this incredible course that literally changed all of human history. More even than Jesus's ministry during his time on the earth. Didn't Jesus say that? That his disciples would do even greater things than Jesus himself? Paul probably could easily be declared the single most influential human being that has ever impacted all of, the, all of, all of us down through the ages. Why? Because he was zealous for God. And when he came to the truth, God changed his heart and his zeal truly did become righteous at that point. So now let's, let's chew on this and see how does this come to me? Because honestly, at that point, I'm still going, because, you know, like I said, I had read N.T. Wright stuff. And I read the chapter again, and I read and I read on in the book, and then I was thinking about other stuff, and I was like, God, I don't, I don't, I don't get it, because this is not what my heart says. This is not what my heart says. My heart says Jesus is love. My heart says Jesus is merciful. My heart says Jesus loves people, and that He doesn't hurt people in His zeal for you, oh God. And I don't understand this. And literally, literally, it was amazing. 
I pull up an app that I don't use for Bible study. I simply use to read the Bible from. And I open the book, I mean, open the app, and I type on the word zeal. I mean, I type, I highlight the word zeal on my phone. And it gives me the choice of look up or define. I always do look up. Always. It always gives me a definition. Always. Except this time. It brought up John Wesley's sermon on Christian zeal. I had to read that two and three times. And what was really crazy was John Wesley said, he quoted somebody else who was a hundred years his before him. And he said, the only Christian preacher I've ever read that talked about this at all was this guy. And he lived a hundred years ago. He said, I'm pretty convinced this is something we don't talk about as Christians. And I was like, this is interesting, God. I'm reading and reading and reading and reading. And the more I read, the more it confirmed everything that was in my heart. It was so fun. Because I was like, you mean I'm really right, God? Honestly, everything that I had chewed on and thought about. But I was like, I don't see how I can reconcile this. And is, am I just trying to make this up to make it fit? You know, am I trying to force my square peg into this round hole? But what John Wesley said, to bring it into a nutshell, you can read it for yourself. It's a very lengthy sermon. What he said was this. Zeal is the flame of love. Zeal is the flame of love. If you truly love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, if you truly love your neighbor as yourself, then everything that you do will be for God's glory and or the betterment of your fellow human beings. Everything. Because your whole heart is going to be, I want what's best. I want God's best. For us, for them, for everyone. I was reminded of videos that I have refused to watch because I did not need that nasty, violent garbage in my mind and in my heart. But I have seen stilled images of these videos. And what I'm talking about is back a number of years ago, there were some Christians in the Middle East who had been captured by ISIS fighters who were then paraded out in orange jumpsuits and walked down this sandy area and made to kneel facing away from their executioner. And the executioners then each one took out a sword and apparently cut their heads off. I refused to watch that. But as I was reflecting on this idea of zealousness and what does it mean to be a zealot, God whispered to me, those ISIS fighters are zealots, Bob. They truly believe in their religion that they are doing what is God honoring. They are, they are getting rid of the infidel, which is what their religion teaches. 
So it's not a matter of zealotry being a good or a bad necessarily, but it is what is the purpose or the, or the root or the goal of your zealousness. We're all supposed to be zealous for God, all of us. But what is your motivation? John Wesley referred to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If we were to turn to that, well, I'll turn to it. You don't have to. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Verse 4 through 7, or 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And as I was thinking about this and mulling it over, and I thought about these ISIS fighters who, in their zealousness, beheaded their enemy, and the Lord whispered to me, and the Papa Bear in Biloxi, Mississippi, had the exact same heart as these ISIS fighters who beheaded their enemy. They were trying to make right that which was wrong. They were doing it with a good motive, just from a wrong foundation. So, as I have tried to bring this all into for myself, because believe me, this is not something I have settled. This is something I'm going to be chewing on for a little bit. But as I have been thinking about it, I've recognized that I myself have come through a transition in my own world, in my own life. Because back when I was a young adult, in my, my mid-twenties, all the way through to my mid-thirties, I truly, truly, and I mean this with all of my heart, I could not understand how anyone could call themselves a Christian and register as a Democrat. I couldn't. It did not make sense to me. But what I, what I also learned, and this happened, I, I've shared this with some of you, so some of you, you're going to hear this story, you're going to oh yeah, I remember that. Some of you have never heard this, so just take it. Um, when I was in the Philippines in 1984 to 87, something happened to me that just shook me to the core. And it was, there was a patriotic concert going on. And back then, I was living in a foreign country, and I was really... Um, very patriotic to the point of whenever the national anthem was playing, I stopped and I did my salute and I did everything right. And as soon as the Filipino national anthem then, I just kept walking. Which was a disrespectful thing to do in a foreign country, but it was the way I felt. This is my country. I want to honor my country. I want to honor my king, my God, my, my, my president. But I was in this patriotic concert. And I'm literally at the back of the theater with my hands in the air, tears streaming down my face going, Yes! 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 <laughs> Because the very emotions and physical actions that I was engaged in mirrored perfectly worship in a church service. And I went, is my worship fake? 
Am I worshiping in a false way? What is this and this? What I, what I have come to understand and what was confirmed in my study this week was zealotry is not just, um, how do I say it? It's, it's a multifaceted thing. There is religious zealotry. There is national zealotry. The problem with our stories, Phineas, Elijah, Saul, even Jesus, is they were a nation of God. They were a people of God. They were trying to keep their people of God pure to become the blessing to the rest of humanity that they were declared by God to be. So when they were being zealous for their nation, it was not a national, you know, patriotic, rah, rah, here's the, here's the Israelite flag and we're just going to... This was them defending God's honor as a nation. For me, from my mid-twenties to my mid-thirties, I kept saying, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But the problem is, God never said that about the United States of America. He never said that about Britain. He never said that over Russia. He never said that over China. It was declared over Israel. But see, then we tried to take it for ourselves and say, God bless America. God blesses America. As long as we honor God, we have His blessing. I'm not saying we don't have His blessing, but then what happens to the rest of the world? It's kind of like two football teams standing on opposite ends of the field praying, Oh Lord, let us win at all costs, so let us win. Which prayer is God going to answer? Because obviously only one of them gets answered unless there's a tie. Right? So who did God honor in that prayer? Now equate that to the national stuff. There are enemies. Defeat them, oh God. But they're my children too. I love them too. I desire relationship with them too. See, it gets all convoluted when you try to bring nationalism into your religion. I've been in churches that have the Memorial Day and the Fourth of July and the Veterans Day ceremonies in their worship services. And you'll notice in this church, there's not a single American flag. There's nothing in this room that points us to anything other than God and Christ. That's it. And it's intentional. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being patriotic. I am saying as a nation, we should honor our country. We should honor our flag. We should honor our leaders. That's, and as Christians, we should pray for them and we should do, we should follow the laws of our land. That's part of who we are as Christians. But when it comes to zealousness, one of them has to fall back. One of them has to take a step back. Or you're ending up with idolatry. And so for me, I have to say, God is first. Everything else, including my love for my country, has to take second place. I am very much a zealot when it comes to my country, believe me. I play, I, I, I don't, I don't play. I try not to in any way make a public statement politically because I stand as a pastor in this community. So I try hard not to go there. 
But I have very strong feelings. And if I wasn't a pastor, I would be much more vocal about them. And I do love my country. I do honor my country. But I do struggle with the idea that I should be better than everyone else because my country's better. Therefore, God's going to bless my country to the detriment of anybody else. Because God loves all of us. And we are all supposed to be honoring God and advancing the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of my nation or the kingdom of his nation or her nation. Or even my religion, my denomination over that denomination. I should rejoice whenever the kingdom of God is advanced, period, end of discussion. So if the two rivers, I mean, the Pleasant Valley Baptist Church starts running 70 and we're still only 25, woohoo! 50 more people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and they're committed to serving the kingdom. Yay! Not, I wish they'd come this way. How come we never get any new people? I hope that I've communicated myself well. I hope I haven't stepped on too many toes. I know I probably have stepped on toes. It is what it is. What I believe I hear God saying to me that I needed to say to you is God demands from you your complete 100% allegiance. God demands from you that you honor him with every part of your life. And that's why this scripture has been on the screen in front of you all morning long. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means showing mercy and keeping yourself clean from the world. That's what God expects. Loving God with all of your soul, your mind, your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The two greatest commandments. That's what Jesus was all about. And it was perfectly, legitimately righteous for Jesus to clear the temple and to be consumed with zeal for the house of God. But he wasn't doing it in a way that was trying to be harmful to any of those individual human beings. He wasn't singling them out and trying to be mean-spirited to them. He was saying, you are not going to take my father's house and turn it into a place of iniquity. Do you understand the difference? Do you see the difference? Let's pray. Father, I am excited for the fact that I hear from you. I'm excited for the fact that even though I didn't coordinate anything, I heard people in Sunday school as I came in talking about the lesson, talking about being hot or cold, not lukewarm. I, I was like, God, I'm so excited because you told me specifically for this morning to preach about zealot, to being a zealot for you. And then here, just before the service started, you had your people reflecting on what it means to be a zealot. They didn't use those words, but they were already reflecting on You had already begun preparing their hearts and their minds. And so, Father, whatever you choose to do with all of this, however you choose to, to, to impact us, Lord, I just ask that you would just do it in a mighty way. I pray, Father God, for our community. I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would use us in our zealotry for you to advance the kingdom of God here in Two Rivers. And may you be honored, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray.